Thank you, Todd. Have you ever been distracted? I know a thing or two about distractions, so. I mean, have you ever been distracted like the kid trying to do homework while the TV is running? Well, you know where you're trying to think about something important. You're trying to do something important. You're trying to focus on that, and yet there's something else that's a little more immediate, a little more exciting that catches your attention and keeps you from being able to focus on that. Sometimes we get caught up in things that are immediate but not important. I remember having a, a, a baseball practice when all of a sudden there was a really big noise in the parking lot from a truck and all of the kids whipped around to look at the noise from the truck. Thankfully nobody got hit in the face with a baseball because they weren't looking for a baseball. A lot of times in life, we have noise. We have distractions. Sometimes those are exciting things. We get distracted by things that seem fun or seem important. And sometimes they might be scary or hard things that can drag our hearts down and keep our focus on all the stuff around us. I think all of us face those things. That is very much why Jesus says the things that he says in Luke chapter 12. We're going to be joining our study in Luke there once again this week. We will um, look at most of the rest of the chapter. So I would invite you to get a Bible. And uh, if you don't have one of your own, just lift your hand and Mr. Todd will make sure you've got one. We've got plenty. You want to have God's word in your hand. You want to be able to see what Jesus said, not just take my word for it. You want to be able to work through it here while we're in the moment of preaching, but you also want to be able to work through it on your own at home, to be able to pour over this love letter from God, to be able to underline and write notes in it and understand it and wear it out. By all means, wear it out. That's what Bibles are made for. They're not made to sit on the shelf and collect dust. So, hopefully by now I've stalled long enough for everybody to get a Bible. You want to be looking at Luke chapter 12. We're going to be reading through this together. And as we do it, I think you're going to see very clearly, all of chapter 12, even what we saw last week, sort of falls under this idea, this core reality that we're going to be looking at today, that earthly concerns negate heavenly priorities. Earthly concerns negate heavenly priorities. Let's see if you don't notice that theme as we go through here. We're going to pick up with uh, verse 13 of chapter 12, and then we'll read through the end of the chapter. We're only going to focus uh, on um, up through about verse 48, but we're going to read through the end of the chapter. You can follow along with me. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Such a problem. Overproduction. I've got so much stuff. I don't know what to do with it all. Verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you'll eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the Master puts in charge of His servants to give them their food, uh, to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the Master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready, or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know, and does things deserving punishment, will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has, for, <clears throat> excuse me, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two. Two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, 
Try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, drive deep into our hearts today the reality that earthly concerns negate heavenly priorities. Help us to set our hearts on the things that truly matter. To set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. To recognize what you value, that we might value those same things. Show us the foolishness, futility of our earthly worries and concerns. And teach us the fundamental urgency of doing the work you've given to us while we wait for Christ's return. These things we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus, who is returning. Amen. As Jesus is going through this, uh, this sermon, you may remember from the beginning of the chapter that he has a crowd of thousands. This is a massive crowd, not a small crowd, not like we have here, not like you see at most churches. Thousands of people, so much so that they're actually trampling on one another. Some of you maybe have been to large events, big concerts where it kind of felt like that. Or you've been to the mall at Christmas time, one of my least favorite places in the world. And this event of Jesus preaching has drawn such a crowd, this massive crowd. And he starts out talking to his disciples. And last week we looked at the reality of him pushing this this caution against hypocrisy. And we saw that hypocrisy was revealed when we would get caught up in in fearing man more than fearing God. When we had concerns about the dangers of this life or the reputation we might lose or what it might cost us to follow Jesus. And, And it shows what we really believe. We can confess Christ with our mouths and have it not really be a confession. It's a profession. We've said something, but it hasn't come from inside of us because our actions actually show what we believe. That's why Jesus says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. That yeast that works its way through is hypocrisy. (coughs) And he talked about how that fear of the world around us drives that. Because it doesn't line up with trusting that God is God. That's just the beginning, the part of the whole of this chapter. This is uh, one of the better uh, chapter breaks as we look at things where it has a, a pretty clear message. It extends, the end of this chapter that we'll look at next week, extends into chapter 13 and, and we'll get a little deeper into that. We're going to focus through verse 48. We're going to be looking at this idea that earthly concerns negate heavenly priorities. Let's say that core reality together. Earthly concerns negate heavenly priorities. Jesus is saying there are priorities of heaven that align with reality. This is is what actually is real. And then we have the concerns of this life that seem real. They seem important. And he's calling us to lift our gaze, to see things as they really are, as opposed to how they seem to us in the moment. The moment can be overwhelming. You hit a home run, it's overwhelming joy. You strike out, it's overwhelming sorrow and shame. Believe me, I know the sorrow and shame. I don't know about the glory from the home run. But the beauty of this is that we can see past that. And if you've been a little league parent, hopefully, hopefully, there's no promise here, but hopefully you've taught your children to see beyond that moment. You're going to strike out. You're going to make a fool of yourself at times. And that's okay. That's life. We move on. You wait till the next at bat and you go get it again. You've got to have a short memory. That's why I love baseball. It's a great illustration of life. 
But we also have to teach our kids not to get overwhelmed with our successes. We get so caught up in the wins, we get so caught up in the performance, in the good things, that we still also lose sight just as we do in the bad things. Why am I talking about baseball? Because that's how life works. You and I have a tendency to get really caught up when things are going well and forget about God. And we get really caught up when things are going badly and we forget that God is bigger than our problems. Well, we know it to say it when people are around, but we don't say it to ourselves enough. And so our minds and our hearts are set on the things around us as opposed to the things that God has determined are so. When God says, you are mine, then my failure can't take me from him. When he says, you are a child of God and I have forgiven you in Christ, no amount of failing can steal that grace away. And when he says, you don't belong to me, I don't even know you, because you've been caught up in your religion instead of embracing the Son, no amount of good deeds can change that reality. What is real is real, even if it isn't screaming and flashy. Very often the reality is quiet, even, as we talked about last week, unseen. The seen things are temporary. The unseen is eternal. That's why Jesus is saying what he's saying here. So he starts out as he's talking about hypocrisy to his disciples, those who are already committed to following. They might be just the 12, but it seems like while he's focusing on the 12, it, there, there may be many more who have committed to following. Now he's speaking not only to his disciples, but to the crowd. Same crowd he just referred to as a wicked generation in chapter 11. The same crowd that's there looking for signs, looking for tricks. We want to see the, the show. We want to see what the magic man can do. We want Jesus Christ to be superstar, not Savior. And so as we, as we look at his teaching now, he's expanding this out. Generally speaking, as a rule, when he begins to speak in parables, as he said to his disciples, these parables are usually for the masses because they divide between those who can hear and those who cannot. When he gives these parables, some are given to actually listening and hearing. Those whom the Spirit has quickened, has made alive. Those whom the Spirit has softened in their hearts so that they are ready to receive it. But others hear the parables, and who cares? We move on. Show me another trick. So the parables become a dividing point between those who will believe and those who will not. As we see him preaching this to everyone, there are some really key points we see as he talks about uh, this rich fool. What a, what a great way. You've got thousands of people, right? Huge crowd. You've just heard Jesus talk about hypocrisy. I don't know how many people were able to hear him talking to the disciples. If he's turning aside to the inner circle group, probably the thousands maybe didn't catch it all. Probably isn't trying to talk loud. I'm speculating because that's not in the text, but that seems like a logical conclusion. Does that seem like much of a leap there? I, I think that fits. But now somebody is close enough to be able to, to appeal to him. So if you're close enough to appeal to him, you've just heard him saying this stuff, talking about hypocrisy. And your first thought is, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to share his stuff with me. Now, the inheritance was very clearly delineated at that time. It was given to the oldest son, and that's how things were. It's not like today where you sit down and you make out a will and you change things. There was a standard way of doing things. It was already set. But this dude wanted more stuff. How do we know he just wanted more stuff? Because Jesus is attacking the greed virus. He doesn't say, well, you know, that would be fair. He says, Come on, man. Are you kidding me right now? You're coming to me to settle your family squabbles because you want more stuff? You better be on your guard against all forms of greed. 
And greed comes in many forms. But that desire for more stuff, it's not enough. What I have isn't quite enough. I need a little bit better car. I need to make a little bit more money so I can get a little nicer cable package. Or I can upgrade my, my internet. Or I can get a little bit nicer house. Or wear a little bit cooler shoes. Or whatever that happens to be, that greed is a dangerous thing. And he talks about that with them. And, and then he continues past the greed into talking about what we might call contentment. Say, look, you know, you can see this guy, he's kind of lost it. He's, he's so consumed in keeping all of this stuff. He's got more than he can spend. He doesn't even know what to do with it. So instead of being generous with it, that's implicit, I'm going to tear down my storage stuff so I can keep more stuff for myself. Mine, 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 mine. All of us can see that as perhaps a bad thing. But he goes farther and he says, listen, you're concerned about getting by. Yeah, the rich fool is concerned about getting more, but you're concerned about getting by. Why? All of your worry, all of your stress, it can't do anything to make your situation better. You're freaking out about things that you don't control. And you think, if I just hustle a little more, if I just grind a little bit more, then I'll be able to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll be able to get it taken care of. He's talking about worldly things here. But the same thing applies to our spiritual lives. If I try a little bit harder, I can overcome my failings. I can resist temptation on my really strong willpower. How's that work? How many of you have been able to resist temptation by your really strong willpower? If you have, it probably wasn't much of a temptation to you. I can resist liver and onions and spinach really, really easily. That chocolate brownie is a little tougher for me. But Jesus isn't talking about that. That's a little side road for us to understand how this works out. What Jesus is talking about is thinking about all the stuff how I'm going to amass some sort of savings so that I can get my bills paid. Because I'm not really sure how else to get over. I just got I, I, I to get this taken care of. Worry about what the doctor's going to say. When that, that little lump leaves me with uncertainty, then what? When... People are going to think ill of me and my reputation is going to be ruined. Then what? When I don't look like I should look, then what? When I'm afraid, I'm in danger, then what? How will I protect my children in this wicked and corrupt world? How can I raise kids in a world where every television commercial... Every song on the radio, every conversation by passers-by seems to be leading them down the path to hell, teaching them that sin is normal and righteousness is weird. How do I raise kids in that world? And Jesus is talking about all of these things as he says, why are you worried about it? I got this. He talks also about the fact that he's given us work to do. That we as Christ followers have a job. And some jobs are different than others. He's given me a particular job as a pastor. He's given our overseers a particular ministry. He's given each one of us as believers a ministry. How seriously are we going to take that? Because there's going to come a point when he's going to return and we're going to have to look him in the eye and explain why we're doing what we're doing. Now, I remember hearing that as a youth group kid that, you know, that's your motivation for not doing really bad things. Do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? I get it. That's not wrong. But do you want to be wasting your time on frivolous pursuits when Jesus comes back? 
When you are called to account for the things that you do, the words that you say, where you spend your time and your money, are you going to be able to explain, man, I was doing what you set me here to do? Or are you going to have to say, you know, I, I forgot. I was distracted. The concerns that we face here seem to be in competition with the priorities that God has given to us. Earthly concerns negate heavenly priorities. Let's work through this. First of all, we see greed is foolish. The Lord will judge. Greed is foolish. The Lord will judge. Take a look at verses 13 to 21. Some of the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, my tone may be perhaps a tad interpretive, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Notice how closely this parallels what he says to his disciples about watching out, being on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here he's saying, similarly, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, something that can work through believers in that hypocrisy, something that can work through all of us in this greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. What you have and don't have is not the point. And if you have as much as Bill Gates or you know some huge guy, if you own Amazon, it doesn't matter. It still comes up empty. If you are homeless, and you are struggling to figure out what you're going to do for your next meal. It doesn't matter. There's no difference in value. There's no difference ultimately in life. Only in the short term. So get your eyes off of your stuff. He told them this parable to clarify starting in verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. This is an agrarian society. Farming is, is a huge deal. Wealth comes from farming. Owning land indicated wealth. This farmer has an abundant harvest. Now farmers are totally reliant on the general grace of God. Because you can do everything right and have stuff not grow at all. In this case, it grew like crazy. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my current stuff because it's too small. And I'm going to build bigger stuff so that I can store my stuff. That way I can keep my stuff and have more of my stuff. Verse 19, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. In other words, you've got your savings built up. You listen to all the Dave Ramsey stuff and you're all tight on that. You, you, you put your money away. You didn't go... Uh, out to eat all the time. You didn't squander your money on wine, women, and song. You got this packed away. I got stuff, and I like it. Therefore, I can live my life in leisure. I can retire early. I can take it easy. I can live it up. I've earned it. I've worked hard. I've been disciplined. Now, party on, dude. We're ready to go. And God says, really? You fool. You did a great job storing all this stuff up. Now you're going to die. <laughs> this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who's going to get your stuff? He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. He's not even really speaking about the lack of generosity here. He is because that's implicit in being rich toward God. But what he's saying is, you have set your heart on stuff when you should have set your heart on me. You chose what passes as opposed to what lasts. How's that going for you, dead man? Because now you have to face eternity. Jesus says elsewhere, what good does it do to gain the whole world if in the process you lose your own soul? You can do better. Greed is inherently foolish. He calls him a fool. 
You've wasted your life. You've done things that seem significant to you, and they are not. They are the opposite of significant. <laughs> like sands through the hourglass. These are the days of our lives. And it's gone. And when it's gone, all your stuff goes with it. Fool. No hearse has a trailer hitch on it. You don't get to pull your U-Haul to heaven. In fact, all the gold you've stored up, they're using it for pavement there. That's the value your riches have. Come on. Greed is foolish. The Lord will judge. At some point, each one of us will have our life demanded of us and we will stand before God. What good will your riches do then? You put everything together. You had the greatest career ever. And God scoffs. Do you want to stand before God and have Him say, you fool. This is what you spent your time on? This is where your energy went? This is what caused you stress to fight with people? To be angry? To really Get angry with your employees because they're not making you enough money. Was it worth it? Because now you stand before God, poor, wretched, and naked. And you have nothing to say for yourself. Greed is foolish. The Lord will judge. Notice next, worry is futile. Or if you prefer futile. I'm from Michigan, I say futile. Worry is futile. The Lord will provide. After talking about greed, it's a natural flow for Jesus to go from the greed of those who have to the worry of those who have not. One of the things that we see clearly in Scripture is that there is no inherent moral superiority to being poor or being rich. And that is a confusion that the Jewish people have very often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's a confusion that we have today. Some of us think that it is somehow morally better to be poor. Poor people are better people than rich people. It's those terrible one percenters. They're ruining the world. But the Bible doesn't say that. They can be. Some of them are. But David Green is a millionaire ten times over. More than that, I don't even know the numbers. It's too big for me. It's like Monopoly money at that point. And yet David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby, gives money away more than I could even dream. His generosity is beyond my ability to tell you. And yet, I know a lot of poor folks I can relate to them a little better. Who are just as greedy as the richest guy out there. They are tight-fisted. I can't share. I can't be generous because I won't have enough for me. And I got to have mine. I can't afford to give to the poor. Shoot, I'm one of them. I'm going to be right there with them. I can't afford to tithe. Listen, tithing is not about giving to the church. Tithing is about acknowledging in your heart that 90% with God is better than 100% without God. Recognizing that what I am giving to God is not anything to Him. It's a symbol of my heart. I'm giving Him my priorities so that I can own my dependence on Him. Tight-fistedness comes whether you're rich or poor. It comes from the heart. Worry is futile. The Lord will provide. He goes on to say, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than that stuff. Look at how things happen in the wild. These are animals that don't work. They don't have a plan they haven't figured out their five-year strategy. They haven't gone into to Fifth Third to set up a good account with my wife. They haven't done any of those things. 
You're all welcome to do that, but that's not relevant. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. But when we get caught up in that stuff, then we miss the point. He's saying, look, all the, all the birds of the field, the flowers of the field, they're all taken care of. What's more beautiful than nature? And yet, we keep trying to improve on it, don't we? This isn't about nature. Although we have a responsibility as Christ followers to care for the creation. We should be the most ecologically friendly people on the, on the planet. Because we get it. We know who owns it and we work for them. So we ought to be taking care of the planet. But it's not about that. It's about what you value. That's why he says um, in, in verse 12 and, uh, 32 and 33, Do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So you're worried about all the stuff here in the world, but he's given you the kingdom. You will rule. You will reign. All of this will be yours after it's been remade and improved. Where it doesn't fall apart. Right now all this stuff decays. But it won't when it's been remade. And then it will be yours. All of this is given to you. Verse 33, sell your possessions. And give to the poor. This is not a call to communism. And it's not a, a call to, for you to give away everything. What he's saying is hold on loosely. Sounds like that should be a song. But hold on to this stuff loosely. Because if you don't, as Corey Ten Boom said, if I don't hold it loosely, then it hurts when God pries it from my fingers. Understand what, what value really is. He says, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. No terrorist can blow it up. No criminal can hurt you. Set your mind on things above. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where you see value, where you place that value, what you choose to treasure, to see as precious, that's where your heart, your concerns will be. If you see this life as precious, that's where your heart will be. That's where your concerns will be. If you see the things of God as most precious, if you value eternity more than this temporal life, if you value trusting God over knowing how things are going to work out, then that's where your concerns, your heart, your priorities will be. It changes everything about how we see and do life. Worry is futile. The Lord will provide. Next, let's see that urgency is fundamental. The Lord will return. Urgency is fundamental. The Lord will return. Starting in verse 35, he calls them to, as the NIV heading says, watchfulness. I would maybe say that as readiness, attentiveness, alertness, understanding that you are a servant with a master. And the master has assigned you a job to represent him in this world. As we say it here at Real Life, to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. So our job here is to be his hands and feet, his ambassadors in the world. He's given us this ministry, all of us. Therefore, when the master comes back, he wants to see his servants doing what he has assigned them to do. It makes sense. If I drop my daughter off at home and say, hey, i got to run down to the church or i got to run to the store. I need you to do your chores. I need you to get stuff taken care of. And I come home and she's watching television and the chores aren't done. I have some questions. And those questions may be less than cheerful. But when I come home and I find that she is doing the work, she has obeyed and has done what she's been called to do, Man, things are joyful. Hey, you know what? We got some extra time. Uh, why don't we get some ice cream? 
because we like ice cream in our family. The, the master returns to find the servant doing good and reward comes. The master returns to find the servant being negligent, not sensing any sort of urgency about doing the task, staying on mission, and then of necessity punishment comes. And there's a weight to it. The more responsibility you've been given, the more is expected. The more ability, the more knowledge, the more is required. The great theologian Ben Parker once said to young Peter Parker that with great power comes what? You know, great responsibility. So Spider-Man, having powers beyond normal people, has a responsibility to use them for good. But understand, every citizen has that same responsibility. It's not like because you don't have spider powers, you get to just ignore bad things and not help the little old lady across the street, not stand up to the bully. You still have that responsibility. But the more your power, the more your ability, the greater that responsibility. The expectation rises. The same is true of God. More is expected of pastors than is expected of lay people. Why? Because God has given us a job. That doesn't mean any of us are not ministers. We are. But some have been given the role of leader and teacher. Therefore, when pastors teach the Bible wrongly or falsely, it is a heinous, a specially heinous crime against heaven. When pastors teach that the Bible does not have total authority, it is a heinous crime against heaven. When churches don't hold out the light accurately in a dark, dark world, it is a heinous crime against heaven and against humanity. We, as the people of light, are held accountable for what God has given to us, what He has entrusted us with. When we get caught up in earthly matters, as if we belong here, as if any of this is of primary importance, we lose sight of the reality of Christ and His kingdom. We lose sight of what really matters. All of the things of this, wor of this world are important. The things that you do every day, the way you approach work is important. If you represent Christ, you should be the most dedicated, diligent, excellent worker in your workplace. It doesn't mean you're the most gifted. It means you're the most committed to excellence because you represent the God of the universe. Because you recognize the importance of representing God well in this world. You should be committed. You should be the last person who shows up late, cuts out early, and looks for ways to get out of work. That's not the Christian work ethic. But understand that all of the things here are going to go away. So they are of secondary importance. What makes them important is remembering what is of primary importance, the things of God. The weight that comes with that makes everything else more significant. Since I've already used Little League Baseball as an example, I'll use it again. When I coach, I have the opportunity to teach kids how to play a sport. Woo, great. I love sports. But eventually, you all get too old and you can't play it anymore. Eventually, those little leaguers, those superheroes of the diamond, who in fourth grade are superstars and scoring all the runs, eventually, they stop playing baseball and they have to live life. What makes it important is not whether or not I've taught them to play baseball. I have to teach them well. That's part of the job. What matters is if I have taught them character that reflects Christ. In my coaching, am I able to come to them and reflect the reality of Christ, the truth of who Jesus is, whether I say a word about it or not? Am I able to reflect that in a way through those relationships 
that makes this secondarily important thing of primary importance. Church, if it's just doing church, if it's just religion, showing up, going through all these things, that is of very little importance. It becomes of primary importance when we are a church who is focused on heaven's priorities. That's our job. For the sake of time, I won't read all of these passages uh, with you, but I will uh, take you to them very quickly and have you put your finger on them and read just a portion. But we need to choose to exchange the stuff of earth for heaven's perspective. Paul talks about uh, his focus, how he concentrates in Philippians chapter 1. I really want to read a big chunk, but I'm going to just take you to a small chunk. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For me, to live is Christ. Everything that I do on this planet, the only thing that matters is Christ. All the stuff that used to matter, I consider that like garbage. Only Christ matters. Gary, I'm going to use you as an example without your permission. I hope you don't get mad at me. When, when our brother Gary got reports from the doctor that nobody wants, and we prayed, and God did not choose to just take it away from him like we would have loved, Gary's priorities got very, very clear, very, very focused. Guys, don't take this wrong, but if I could see that in each of you, then I would pray we all get cancer. Because I got to talk to him in the hospital, and he's laying there in the bed, and, and he said, only thing that matters is Jesus. I want people to see Jesus when they come to see me, whether it's my children or my friends or whoever it is, the nurses, the doctors, I want them to see Jesus. You know, before the cancer, he wanted that same thing. But the urgency was a whole lot different. Tragedy and adversity clarifies our focus. When Paul said that, he was in jail. He would eventually give his life for the gospel. Not yet. But he said, man, I'm torn. I don't know. I, I'm here for Christ, but if I die, man, that's so much better. Because I get to leave this broken, decaying world in my body that doesn't do what I want it to and all of the misery that I face here. And I get to go be with him face to face with my Jesus who is more precious to me than anything else. We need to choose to exchange the stuff of earth for heaven's perspective, just like Paul did. Next, we need to also see that we can choose to exchange the stuff of earth for heaven's priorities. In Colossians, I'm going to read a little bit more of this. In Colossians, we're going to start with chapter 2 and read through chapter 3. Shoot, I'm just going to read. Starting with verse 20. Paul is writing to the, to the church at Colossae and he says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why? Why, brothers and sisters, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? He's calling us to heaven's priorities to see what is valuable, to prioritize the things that God prioritizes because they are eternal and they will last. Why do you still get hung up on these religious rules? He's talking about legalism to them in this particular passage. He'll go on to talk more. But he gives an example. Don't, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, when you're focused on restraining sensual indulgence, it doesn't work. 
God has given you desires that are deeper and greater and broader, and those desires are met in Him. And when we see Him as precious and we chase after the deepest desires of our heart, then we don't have time for the foolishness of sensual indulgence, chasing the things of this world. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Doesn't that make more sense? If you belong to that world, even though you're still in this world, maybe you should get your mind focused on the things of the world to which you belong, where Christ is. And he tells us in Ephesians, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. God has seated us with Christ. So right now, if you are in Christ, while He is seated next to the Father in heaven, you are spiritually seated with Him in heaven. That's your real citizenship. Why do you want to act like you belong here? Verse 2, and I would challenge you to memorize this verse. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, let me just pause for a moment. It's idolatry because as we choose the things of this world over the things of God, we are seeing them, treating them, acting as if they are small g gods that we are worshiping with our actions. Because of these, the wrath is coming, he says in verse 6. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. All of us were there. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. <coughs> he continues, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. He's saying whatever divisions you used to recognize in your flesh, come on, we're past that. We don't live in this world the same way. But Christ is all. He is everything. And He is in all, in all who are His, all who have received Him. Therefore, in verse 12, as God's chosen people, Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is the right wardrobe for those who reflect the reality of Christ in their relationships. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Not over in priority but as a covering, like a coat over your outfit to bind them all together. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And I would add to that our amen. amen. Exchange the stuff of earth for heaven's priorities. I would take you to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's turn there together. 2 Timothy is just a little bit to the right of where we are. The books get skinnier, so they go by faster. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Paul is writing these words to his young protege, Timothy, whom he's left in Ephesus to pastor the church there. These words, however, could be written to each one of us 
Starting with verse 1 of chapter 2, here's what Paul says. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What an exhortation for all of us. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering. Ouch. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Let me read that again, because this needs to sink into us. When we get heaven's priorities, it leads into our final point that we need to exchange the stuff of earth for heaven's purpose. When we have heaven's priorities, it leads into having heaven's purpose. For us to have heaven's priorities, we have to have heaven's perspective. We need to be able to see things from a heavenly point of view. And when we see things from a heavenly point of view, and we value things according to heavenly priorities, then we are driven logically, naturally, to carry out heaven's purpose in us. Let me read that for you again. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember... Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained, amen. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We endure everything when we have heaven's priorities because we are driven to heaven's purpose. Last passage that we'll read together. Turn back to the left till you get to 2 Corinthians. A passage that hopefully many of you are already familiar with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance that we only to the giver of all good things. Our earthly concerns negate heaven, heavenly priorities, but when we exchange the stuff of earth for heaven's perspective and heaven's priorities, that gets us focused on heaven's purpose. Therefore, when the Lord returns, when He comes, He can find us being about His business. Because our minds are right. Our focus is clear. And our passion is completely for the things that He is passionate about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start with verse 11. Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. If you know, then you need to tell others. If you know that God's wrath is being poured out, you need to help others figure out how to escape that wrath. There is only one way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. If I am about my business instead of my Father's business, then the people that I care about in this world will miss out on eternal life because I was too distracted to carry out heaven's purpose. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, <clears throat> excuse me, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than, <clears throat> rather than in what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. There's a purpose here. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, no, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Paul is offering the gospel with an urgency that says, listen, you can be reconciled to God, but if you're not, only damnation awaits. But it is here because He loves you, and we know it because we've received it, and since we've received it, we receive with it the job, the purpose of being the ambassadors of Christ in this kingdom. We are citizens of another kingdom, but we live here with the purpose of representing the place we actually belong. You are heaven's ambassadors on this earth. When an ambassador becomes consumed with the things of the wrong kingdom, they're called traitors. Don't be consumed with the stuff of the kingdom you don't belong to. Raise your gaze, lift your eyes. You need to ask yourself what this looks like in your life. What things distract you? How do you personally lose heaven's perspective and priorities? What things do you do instead of the things that God wants you to be doing? What concerns are keeping you from being and doing all you're meant to be and do for the kingdom? Why does it matter? You see, if I miss this, if I don't get this right, I will forfeit the very things that I actually desire. I chase after things in this world. I get consumed with these concerns. And in so doing, I give up what I'm chasing. I miss out on abiding peace, lasting joy, true pleasure, real significance, even eternal life if I choose the things below over the things above. It changes my daily walk. When I choose to value the things God values, when I choose to see the things of God as infinitely precious, because I know that God is infinitely precious, it begins to align my thoughts with reality. Stress, temptation, fear, shame, foolish distractions all begin to lose their grip on me. It's not a magic overnight thing. It's a process of growth. A process of learning to live in the freedom that was won for me at the cross. That's a freedom I can only have when I have embraced Christ and what He did for me by dying in my place and conquering death for me. Conquering death in me. If you're not certain that you have gained that freedom, if you're not certain that you have gained that eternal life in Christ, You can be. It's as simple and as completely earth-shattering as turning from your own ways to follow Him. Choosing to let go of your life to take hold of His life. That means putting all your trust and hope in His work to save you and no trust or hope in your own ability to save yourself or earn His favor. The Bible says that when we believe in the reality of Christ's death and resurrection for us. And we confess publicly that we belong to Christ with Him calling the shots in our life that we will be saved, reborn, transferred from death to life. We become for the very first time and forever children of God, completely forgiven, free from sin and perfectly loved and accepted in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have embraced Him and what He did on the cross for you, 
then that's true of you. You're his child, completely loved, perfectly loved, totally forgiven, and free from sin. I would love to talk to you about that if you're not sure, to help you to become sure. Last week I mentioned a song that addresses the struggle between the concerns of earth and the priorities of heaven. I'd like to close today by reading it to you. It's very dear to me. It's both my prayer and my personal credo. And whether or not you like the song, I hope that the content becomes your prayer and credo as well. The song is called If I Stand by the Late Rich Mullins. Here's the text of it. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun and more that shines in the night than just the moon. It's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm and a shelter that is larger than this room. And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment and a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. There's more that dances on the prairies than the wind, more, than, more that pulses in the ocean than the tide. There's a love that is fiercer than the love between friends, more gentle than a mother's when her baby's at her side. And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment and a music higher than the songs that I can sing. But the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that has born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Father, help us now in this moment to see clearly. To see what matters most. And Father, as we go from this place, may we not be on hiatus from your word but with the words that you have spoken today. <laughs> May the preacher be forgotten and the word ever remembered. May the words that you have spoken today ring in our hearts, consume our thoughts, that our earthly concerns might never overshadow and negate the heavenly priorities that you have made clear to us. These things we pray in the name of the one who knew no sin yet became sin for us, that we might be yours and fully righteous. Amen.